This morning, we're going to be back in our I Doubt It series as we uh, continue to attempt to answer some of the biggest doubts, some of the biggest questions that I think we tend to have just as human beings. Um, As I've mentioned several times, the last week of this series is going to be on June 9th. Uh, That's two Sundays from today. And that day will be a little bit different than most other Sundays because on June 9th, we're actually going to have a small discussion panel right here on the stage, and we're going to be answering your doubts and and your questions. And so we've already received a bunch of good questions, um, but today is the last day for you to submit uh, your doubts or or your questions. And so I would just encourage you, if you've kind of been waiting, uh, today is your day. Uh, So take take out your Connect card, write your question down, write uh, whatever doubt kind of haunts your mind about God or Scripture or faith, uh, suffering, whatever it is. And then we're going to do our best just to kind of hopefully identify the top three, four, maybe five questions that emerge from all of y'all's questions, and we'll do our best to kind of unpack those together uh, two weeks from today right here on stage. And so uh, you can submit those questions or doubts either via email, and that email address will be on the screens for you, uh, or like I said earlier, on your Connect card. You can drop those off in the wooden boxes at the back on your way out. Uh, the question that we're going to try to answer today, we're going to attempt uh, to tackle today is, I think, one of the, the biggest ones out there, at least in our, our current culture. Uh, it's likely one that uh, you've at least thought about. You've rolled around in your mind at some point, whether you're here as a Christian or whether you're here as a, a skeptic. And the question that we're going to attempt to answer this morning is, is this one. Is the Bible really reliable? Is the Bible really reliable? I mean, wasn't it written by flawed men? Isn't it this like old, outdated book just full of legends and myths? And isn't it sort of irrelevant to life today in America in 2019? I think a lot of skeptics have walked away from Jesus because of some of these very common assumptions in our culture. The question, though, for us this morning is, um, are, are those types of assaults against the Bible, are they, are they true? Or, or do we actually have sufficient evidence to trust that the Bible is both historically accurate and truthful? Well, the good news this morning and kind of the, the big overarching idea of the entire message this morning is this. We have great reasons, not just like good enough reasons, we have great reasons to believe that the Bible is reliable and truthful, right? So that's, that is the main idea that I want you to kind of walk out of here with this morning. For the Christians in the room, my hope for you is that you would leave encouraged to dive deeper into the Bible, into the scriptures. If you're here this morning as a non-Christian, my hope is that uh, the message this morning would at the very least cause you to reconsider perhaps some of your assumptions about the accuracy and the reliability of the Bible. In uh, Luke chapter 24, uh, there's this story of Jesus right after the resurrection. And um, some of his disciples are, are kind of hanging out and they're, they're depressed, man. They're like, they're in the dumps. They've just seen their leader brutally executed on a cross. And um, we, see, we see Jesus just kind of approach them they have no idea that he's alive again at this point. And so again, they're just, they're in the dumps. 
and Jesus obviously overhears uh, some of their conversation, and he walks up to them, and he, and he says, Oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe everything that the prophets have written. And when Jesus said, slow to believe all that the prophets have written, this was a reference to the Old Testament scriptures. This was a, this was a reference to the Bible. So the, fir- the first skeptics of the Bible were Jesus' own disciples. Now, how did, how did Jesus respond to this? Well, Dr. Luke tells us that he began to teach them the scriptures beginning with Moses. And so he started all the way back in Genesis, and he worked all the way through the prophets, all the way up to his own resurrection. Luke tells us he then sat down, he ate a meal with them, he gave them evidence to believe that the Bible, what the Bible says is in fact true. And I believe that's exactly what God wants to do today for you, to show you that the scriptures are reliable and trustworthy. And the way that we'll do that this morning is by addressing the, uh, the primary objections of the Bible's reliability in our culture, and then I'll attempt to show you that the Bible is, in fact, very much accurate, reliable, and trustworthy. Now, I think the most common knock that we'll hear in our culture uh, against the Bible, whether you're on a, just a secular college campus or maybe if you're like me and you listen to or read some of the big atheistic thinkers out there like Richard Dawkins or, or Sam Harris, kind of the most common knock or assault against the Bible that you're here is, is some version of this. It goes like this. The Bible is not historically accurate or culturally relevant. In, in other words, the argument basically says, you know, the Bible has likely been changed. It's been uh, manipulated over centuries and centuries of time to the point that we don't, we don't really know what actually happened all those years ago. So church leaders, they probably modified it to gain power for themselves or to consolidate power for themselves. You've probably all heard those arguments. But the reality is historians tell us that the Bible is actually one of the most, if not the most, reliable and accurate documents in antiquity. And I'll, I'll, show, you, I'll show you what I mean by that. There's this guy, I don't know how to pronounce his name, so don't, don't email me if I get this wrong, but Greek historian, uh, lived about 400 years before Jesus. His name was Thucydides or something like that. But he, he wrote about uh, Roman history and Roman culture and uh, Greco-Roman culture. And again, lived about 400 BC. Now, scholars believe that what we have from him is historically accurate, okay? So there, there, nobody really questions the accuracy of what we have from him. And we have eight copies of his writing, okay? Eight copies of his writing. The most recent copy of his writing was written 1,300 years after his life and death, okay? So 1,300, over 1,000 years after the original documents. We have eight copies of his work. And historians agree that his work is historically accurate and it's reliable. Like, nobody even really questions it. Then take uh, Aristotle's work, uh, Poetics, for example, um, he, he, he wrote this 1,400 years, or sorry, the, the most recent copies we have are 1,400 years after he actually wrote this work. Guess how many copies we have of his book, Poetics? We have five copies of his book written 1,400 years after the fact. Historians consider it historically accurate and reliable. Everybody 
trust the reliability of these ancient works. So what about the New Testament, right? We must have far, far less, right? Five and eight, remember? Nobody even questions it. Get, get this, Mark uh, Clark, the author of The Problem of God, he, he notes in his book that there are, get this, over 25,000 copies of the New Testament documents in existence today. The greatest number of manuscripts by far of any writing in the ancient world. Now, some would come back and say, well, okay, Chris, that, that's fine. I can't really argue against that. But uh, the problem with the New Testament is the New Testament was actually written too late. In other words, there, there was too much time that elapsed between the events themselves and the time that they were written down. And the, the truth of the matter is that's not, that's not true at all. We know for a fact that New Te- the New Testament was written between 40 and 60 years after the resurrection of Jesus, some of it as early as 15 to 20 years after the resurrection. Many of the letters that the apostle Paul wrote would have been in those early years. The book of James was in those early years. Some argue that the gospel of Mark would have been in those early years, right? So people who argue that the Bible is not historically accurate, hold it to a standard which we hold no other writing in history to, right? The New Testament is by far the most well-documented, accurate writing we have of that time period, and it's not even close. So criticism that the Bible isn't historically accurate, it's not culturally relevant, is false, I'll give you several reasons why that's false by examining the four, I think, the biggest myths about the Bible uh, in our culture that kind of feed into that, that claim. Now, I want to let you know I'm leaning heavily on uh, pastor and theologian uh, Tim Keller here who wrote a book that I would recommend to you called The Reason for God. Some of you maybe have already uh, read that book. Fantastic book. So if you want to go deeper and what we're talking about today, he's devoted an entire chapter to answering this question and, and many others. It's uh, really good stuff. Also, this morning, we're going to be focusing primarily on the New Testament, okay? It would probably take me another uh, two messages to address the Old Testament. Now, my promise to you is if you stick around New Life uh, long enough, uh, we'll get there. If you've been around a little while, you know we spend a lot of time in the Old Testament and the New Testament here. But uh, this morning, for the sake of time, we're just going to hone in on the New Testament and how we know that it's historically accurate and reliable, okay? Now, here are kind of the, the, the main knocks that you're gonna hear in our culture against the accuracy of the Bible. Myth number one, you've heard this. The Bible is full of legend. So the argument kind of goes like this. Man, it's been modified. The, the New Testament writings have been doctored uh, by those in the church world seeking power. So a bunch of things in the New Testament, like the miracles, like the resurrection of Jesus, those things were probably added to the documents like way, way after the fact. Now, we, we know that the Bible is, is not legend for several reasons. The fir- first way we know it's not legend is that the New Testament writings are far too early to be legend or to, to have been tampered with, right? The, the New Testament documents were recorded based on first-hand eyewitness accounts of the events. So I want you to listen to the Apostle John. This was probably uh, Jesus' closest friend. This will be on the screens for you. This is 1 John chapter 1. This is what John writes. Listen to this. He says, that which was from the beginning, and he's, he's talking about Jesus here, right? His life, his death, his resurrection. 
that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. That's a reference to Jesus. He's saying, look, we, we saw the events. I am an eyewitness. I'm just telling you these things happened. If you have a Bible, go to 2 Peter chapter 1. That's where we're going to camp out together this morning. 2 Peter chapter 1. And I want you to listen to the words of the apostle Peter beginning in verse 16. This is what Peter says. Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to this. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And so John and Peter both are saying, guys, listen, this is not a myth. This is not a legend. We saw all of this go down with our own eyes. Now understand this, legends are easy to introduce hundreds of years after all the eyewitnesses are dead, right? Legends are really easy to introduce once everybody who was around during that time period is dead so that they can't refute that what you're saying is a lie, right? You can't introduce legends when everybody who saw those events is still walking around. So kind of think, think of it like this. Let me illustrate it like this. Say that I came in here one morning and I said, hey, listen, uh, back in 2005, Mexico dropped a nuclear bomb on North Carolina, now, what, what would most of you say? You know, why, why don't you believe that? Why are you all so skeptical? Huh? Most of you would say, Chris, you're a liar because I was alive in 2005. And I can tell you, Mexico never dropped a nuclear bomb on the state of North Carolina. So Chris, you're crazy or you're a liar. But you guys could refute that legend because you were around or most of you were around. Well, guess what? The New Testament was written while tons of eyewitnesses were still alive. Now, guess how many documents we have of the opponents of Jesus in the early Christian movement, and there were many. Guess how many documents we have from the opponents of Jesus refuting the claims of the New Testament? Any guesses? Zero. Zero. Listen, if, the, if these guys were lying, there would have been tons of Roman and Jewish historians happy to refute their claims, and yet we have no evidence of anybody ever refuting them, none at all. And then you have Mark in the Gospel of Mark saying stuff like, hey, hey, the guy who carried the cross for Jesus, his name was Simon of Cyrene, and he was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Why on earth did he put those details in there? Mark was saying, listen, if you don't believe me, you guys know Simon. You guys know his sons, Alexander and Rufus. You guys know they live in Jerusalem. Go talk to them. They'll tell you that what I'm saying is true. They'll confirm my story. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul says there are 500 eyewitnesses that saw the resurrected Jesus at one time. Why would he put that detail in there if it's a fake legend? Paul puts that in there as if to say, hey, listen, if you don't believe me, go ask one of them. 
Most of them are still alive. They're scattered all over the city. C.S. Lewis, one of my, my favorites. Uh, if you don't know Lewis, Lewis was a world-class uh, literary uh, critic. He was a, a professor at Oxford University, atheist who became a follower of Jesus. And uh, this, is, this is what Lewis says talking about the New Testament documents, specifically the Gospels. He says, I've been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, and myths all my life. I know what they are like. I know none of them are like this, the Gospels. Listen, the New Testament writings are far too early to be legend. They simply cannot be. There were too many people still around and alive that could have refuted everything that the apostles wrote if it wasn't true. The second reason we know the New Testament can't be full of legend is that it's far too detailed. So not only is it far too early, it is far too detailed to be legend or fabricated myth. I'll give you some examples. In John chapter 21, there's a story where the apostle Paul records Jesus and Peter fishing together. And he records that they, on one time, one occasion, they caught 153 fish. Why 153 fish? Why not just say, like, they caught a bunch of fish? They caught a boatload of fish? Why did he write 153 fish? Because John was just recording what actually happened. Just like all good fishermen, you count how many you caught so you can brag to your buddies, right? So they clearly counted all the fish, and he's just telling you, they caught 153 fish. And then consider the story in Mark chapter 14. I think this is one of the funnier stories in the New Testament, right? But Mark, Mark records this event where after Jesus gets arrested, this young man like sprints away in the streets naked, Okay, that, add, that adds absolutely nothing to the story, nothing to the plot at all. What, why, why did Mark put in there that there was a streaker the night that Jesus got crucified or the night before he got crucified, right? It'd be, it'd be kind of like this. Like, let, let's just say one day um, I'm working in my office, right? It's Monday morning. I'm in here. I'm working in my office. Um, it's about noon. I'm starting to get hungry. I'm like, man, I want some Christian chicken. And so I drive to Chick-fil-A and it's like it, Chick-fil-A is right around the corner, and so I do that oftentimes. I'll just go down to Chick-fil-A and get some chicken strips and a side salad or something like that. And let's just say I'm, I'm in Chick-fil-A one day getting some holy chicken, and let's say there's a guy in front of me who decides to, to strip down and run around Chick-fil-A naked, right? He just starts streaking around Chick-fil-A, okay? Now, I can tell you that the first thing I would do when I got back to the office is I would gather up the staff and be like, guess what, guys? <laughs> You are never going to believe what I just saw at Chick-fil-A. This guy stripped down naked. He was sprinting around Chick-fil-A, right? I, because it's something that's memorable. Like, there's no significance to it, but it's something that I can't get out of my memory. So I'm going to tell people about it, right? Mark is just recording what he saw. This was apparently memorable to him, right? This is history. This is not myth or legend, now, there are many other stories or examples we could give in the New Testament. We don't have time this morning. But listen, the New Testament is far too detailed to be myth or legend. So it's too early. It's too detailed. 
The third reason the New Testament cannot be legend is because, number three, it's too counterproductive. It's counterproductive, right? I mean, if you were, if you were concocting some legend, you probably would take all the bad stuff about yourself out, wouldn't you? Like, I, I, know, I know I would. And yet the disciples are constantly recording their own failures, their own fear, their own lack of faith, their betrayal of Jesus, right? Peter denying Jesus three times in one night. They paint themselves in a terribly embarrassing light. Like that's not what you do when you're trying to pull off some power grab, right? Like, hey guys, let's make ourselves look like complete idiots, like the biggest morons on the planet, and let's see if that will launch a movement. Like, like, that's just dumb. Nobody would do that. They were simply recording what happened, the good, the bad, and the ugly, even about themselves, right? And then you have the gospel accounts, which, by the way, all record that it, were, it was the women. It was the women disciples that saw the empty tomb first. You say, like, well, who cares, man? That's not a big deal. Well, in that culture, it was a huge deal because in that culture, women had such a low societal status that their testimony wasn't even admissible in court. So like, if you were trying to make something up in, in that culture, if you were trying to launch like a, a power grab, like you leave that detail out. Right? You leave that detail out or you change it to where the guys are the ones that discover the empty tomb first. Like That detail was massively counterproductive to them launching a successful movement. But the gospel writers don't care because they are just recording history. Right? The New Testament is way too counterproductive to be a power grab. They put all kinds of things in there that could have absolutely wrecked and killed the movement, but they did it anyway because they're just telling the truth. They are just recording what they saw with their own eyes and what they heard with their own ears. Also, consider the fact that all of the disciples suffered and died brutal deaths for their faith in Jesus. All right, Peter is crucified upside down the day after watching his wife being crucified? Well, listen, if they all knew that this was a lie, they would have, they would have bailed on it, right? No, nobody dies for something that they know is a lie. Like, it, just, just imagine that um, one Monday afternoon, we gathered together for our weekly staff meeting. So it's me and all of our church staff here. And I, I called the staff together and said, Hey, guys, I have this really great idea, okay? And I want you guys to go all in on this. And, and here's the idea. I want us to start a, a, a cult. I want us to start a cult so that we can all get really powerful and really rich, okay? So in this cult, people are gonna have to give us 90% of what they make in order to find favor with God, all right? So it'd be, basically, we'd become like a prosperity gospel church, right? Which we're not. But let's just say that that was like, that was the gimmick that we were gonna try to run, and so everybody's like, oh, rich, powerful. Okay, Chris, we're all in. Let's, let's do this, right? Rodney actually brings this up a lot in staff meetings. I don't know why. It's kind, of, it's kind of weird. But anyway, so let's say we do it, man. And so we get this cult going, and people are giving us 90% of what they make. Man, we're, we're rolling in the money. We're building new buildings. It's like this, this crazy thing. But all of a sudden, like, the mafia shows up one day, right? And they bust in the doors. They're like, hey, listen, 
you guys have to stop this crazy lie, this, this cult thing, because everybody in the city of Asheville is giving all their money to you, and they don't have enough money to buy our drugs anymore, right? So you got, you got, like, you got to cut it out, you got to stop, and if you don't stop this crazy cult lie thing, we're going to torture you slowly, and then we're going to kill you. Guess what? I, I, I love our staff, but I can tell you right now, they're all going to bail out on me. Like, right in that moment, they're, they're done. They're out. I'm like, it's a lie. Okay, we're, we're done with it. Why? Because nobody dies for a lie. And yet the disciples, all the disciples, and most of the early church gave their lives willingly to follow Jesus. The only plausible explanation for all of this is that these guys were just writing down what they actually saw with their own eyes didn't benefit them at all. In fact, it cost them everything. It cost them their own lives. The evidence is overwhelming. The Bible is not full of myth. The Bible is not legend. It's history. It's truth. It bears none of the hallmarks of legend or myth. Now, we don't even have time to get into all of the archaeological evidence, which I wish we did because I love that stuff. We don't have time to dig into things like the discovery of certain uh, Old Testament peoples, like the Hittites, right? Or certain Old Testament cities that people said for years and years and years never existed, like Jericho. But archaeology has proven all these things to actually be true. For years and years and years, people said um, there's no evidence of King David. All right, we just studied King David for three months earlier this year. But uh, scholars for, for decades and centuries even said the Bible can't be true because there's all this stuff about a king named David in the Old Testament, and yet we have no evidence that there was ever any guy named King David until 1993 in an archaeological dig, and they discovered there was actually a king in Israel named David. Now, let me ask you, like, if you lived and died before 1993, before that archaeological discovery, and you had rejected the Bible based on that one thing and said, man, I can't believe the Bible... All this stuff about King David in there, and yet there's no historical scientific proof at all that a guy named King David ever lived. How tragic, right, that you would have perished, you would have died rejecting God, rejecting Christ before all this archaeological stuff verified, and it continues to verify the accuracy and the truthfulness of the Bible. Listen, the Bible is not legend. It is accurate, and it is trustworthy. Now, here's kind of the second big knock on the Bible. You've heard this one too. Myth number two, the Bible is full of contradictions. You've probably heard that one, right? Like a gazillion times. Now, it's, it's always interesting to me when I hear somebody say that, if you ask them, hey, well, that, that's really interesting. Like, which contradictions bother you the most in the Bible? Things typically get really, really quiet. Right? They have no idea most of the time. They're just, they're repeating something that they heard a secular college campus a professor say or some agnostic friend or something like that. There, there are legitimate questions about contradictions, all right? So, for example, in the gospel accounts, some of the accounts mention uh, one angel at the empty tomb of Jesus. Uh, there are other gospel accounts that specifically mention two angels at the empty tomb of Jesus. Isn't that a contradiction? Well, it could kind of seem like that at first. Right until you, until you realize that none of the gospel writers say that there was only one angel there 
or that there was exactly two angels there, right? They're, they're simply recording from memory the event. So it'd be kind of like if 10 of us left uh, this service today, this afternoon, we go out in the parking lot and somebody just T-bones somebody else right in the middle of the parking lot. Big, big wreck, nasty wreck, right? The police come, they're interviewing the 10 of us, the 10 eyewitnesses, like all of us are going to remember different details of that event, right? Now, all of them are true. Nobody would be lying. We just all saw things a little differently from our vantage point, right? This is actually proof that the Gospels are true, right? Because if they were trying to concoct some story, they would have gotten together. They would have made sure that all of the details were exactly the same, but they didn't. They were just recording the events as they remembered them happening. Even today, detectives will tell you, man, if they interview several people, several eyewitnesses, several suspects, and they all have the same exact story right down to the last detail, that is a, detectives will tell you, that is a telltale sign that they have gotten together and they have fabricated a story. See, the, these differences are not contradiction. They are actually proof that none of this was manufactured or doctored. Other people will say, well, what about the contradiction in the Bible where there's one command that says, love your neighbor as yourself, but then yet it seems like the Bible condones slavery. That's, that's a contradiction, right? Well, that's, that's a good question. That's a legitimate question. But I think this is an example of our own kind of cultural blindness, right? See, when we, when we hear the term slavery, we immediately think about the evil, wicked, kind of race based kidnapping slavery of the modern world where people are snatched out of their homes and they are treated like property. But the slavery in the Greco-Roman world was nothing like modern slavery. In fact, the best Bible translations don't even use the word slavery anymore. They use the term bondservant, right? Because in those days, people oftentimes chose to sell themselves into slavery or bondservanthood, typically for 10 to 15 years to get themselves out of debt. It was more like an extended employment agreement than what we think about as modern-day slavery. And even while people were slaves or bondservants, they enjoyed the same rights, the same privileges as everybody else in that society. In fact, many of them had lucrative careers. Many of them were respected leaders in society. So just know the, the Bible always, always, always condemns kidnapping and modern day slavery as we know it. First Timothy 1, Deuteronomy 24 are explicit in forbidding this. In fact, Paul in the book of Philemon, he even encourages believers to free their bondservants, right? This is not a contradiction at all. It's a situation where we are reading about an ancient culture through our own modern cultural lens and we're making some false assumptions about what the Bible is saying when in fact it's actually saying the opposite. You guys following along with that train of thought there? All right, some other people will say, well, what about polygamy, right? The Bible says marriage should be between one man, one woman. You got all these, all these cats in the Old Testament, man. They have multiple wives. The Bible is a book that leads to misogyny and the abuse of women. And the reality is I can see why some people might think that's a contradiction, except every time the Bible, notice this when you read the Old Testament, every time the Bible mentions polygamy, it's wreaking havoc, it's causing 
pain. The Bible never, not one time, describes polygamy in a positive light. It's always causing chaos and pain and brokenness. See, the Bible was just recording what was going on. It never endorses the practice. So we have to be careful not to take descriptive passages in the Bible and make them prescriptive. You know what I'm saying? There are a lot of passages in the Bible that are just describing what's happening. They're not prescribing it. In fact, it, they are, it's, it's forbidden. So it'd be kind of like if I came up here next week and I was describing a guy I knew back in college who beat his wife, and I was using that as an illustration. Listen, me describing that story to you is not me affirming the practice. I'm just telling you what happened. Do you see the, do you see the difference there, Right? The bottom line is that every apparent contradiction in Scripture has a good answer, but we have to be willing to read it in context and not make snap judgments and run away offended, all right? Here's, here's the third big myth in our culture about the Bible. Myth number three, the Bible can't be trusted because it was written by fallen men. And so the argument kind of goes like this, well, how can you say that something is the word of God when it was actually cobbled together by a bunch of sinful dudes over the course of like hundreds of years? Well, Peter, I think, is helpful uh, to us again here. Go back to 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 19. Peter says this, and we have the prophetic word. So he's talking about the, the prophecies in scripture. So he's saying we have the Bible more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention. So Peter's saying, pay attention to the Bible as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Verse 21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, right? Now, that, that word carried along in the Greek is pharaoh. Pharaoh literally means to, to carry, to drive, or to move something along. It's the idea of a ship sailing in the wind, right? The boat is moving, but it's the wind that is supplying the direction, so here's kind of the idea, right? Over the course of the last few years, Cheryl and I have taught our kids how to ride their bikes without training wheels. And so typically how we would start this process is we'd go to the end of our driveway and they would get on their bike and we would hold the kind of the, the, the back of their bike, the seat of their bike, and we would ride to the end of the cul-de-sac, which is about 30 or 40 yards away. And so they would steer their bike and they would pedal and we would kind of run behind them holding the seat of their bike, right, right, right behind them. Now, were my kids riding their bike or was I powering the ride for them? Yes. Yes. Yes, my, my kids were pedaling. My kids were steering themselves, but I was the one making sure that they arrived safely at the destination that I wanted them to arrive at. It was both. And that is exactly what the apostle Peter is saying here. Is the Bible written by man? Yes. Is the Bible written by God? Yes. God pharaohed the scripture writers, right? You say, Chris, man, that sounds like a stretch to me. 
That sounds like supernatural stuff. Well, yeah, but, but look, look, man, like it, if you believe that God created everything that was, that is, if you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, you think him leading men to write down something that he wanted them to write down is a big deal? That's like small potatoes compared to breathing the stars into existence or designing the complexity of the human eye. Look, Christians unapologetically proclaim that our faith is a supernatural faith. We believe in a big, huge, awesome, powerful, good God who does mind-blowing things all the time. Right, inspiring scripture is one of the smaller miracles that we actually believe in. Right, the Bible was written by men from God. It is God's word to us. It is alive, it is active. Look, I'll tell you from personal experience, I, I have read other holy books. I've read uh, most of the Quran. I've read some of the other holy books in Mormonism and Hinduism and Buddhism. And I can just tell you that those books read like man-made books. The Bible is the only book that penetrates my heart. It is a divine book from the one true God. And I always just encourage people who have doubts, like, just read it. Just, just read it. And I think that as you read it, you will find that it begins to read you. And that as you look into the scriptures, you will begin to see God looking back at you. Right? Now, here, here's the last myth. And I think this is the one that is a big stumbling block for a lot of people. It's probably not uh, articulated as often as the other three. But I think this is a big one. Myth number four. The Bible demands too much of me. And so it's kind of one of these things where Chris, man, man, okay, cool, I get historical stuff, the evidence is there, it's reliable historically, I get that, but here's the deal, man, I I can't keep the rules. Man, man, I've tried, man, I've tried, man, I, I, I grew up going to church with my grandparents and my parents and I went to Sunday school and I went to VBS when I was a kid, man, I've tried, And if I'm being really honest, I don't even want to follow all the rules. And so people end up walking away from Jesus because they view Christianity as a burden instead of something that's life-giving and freeing. That was my story, by the way, as 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 a young man. I rejected the Christian faith because it seemed to me a a dry, dead, rules-based faith faith that I knew I couldn't follow. Like even as a, as a, as a young boy, I, I knew how messed up my heart was. Even as a young boy, I knew I wasn't a good boy. Like try as hard as I might, I still did more things on the bad list than I did on the good list. And I'm afraid that's where a lot of people are today. Maybe that's where you are today. Like, man, I just can't, I can't do it, so I'm not even going to try. And I want you to hear this. If, that, if that's you, here, here's the good news. And this is what Jesus, in essence, taught. Are you ready for this? The Bible is not about you. The Bible is not about you. 
It's not about whether you can keep all the rules and be a good enough boy or a good enough girl or anything like that. It's not about that. And that's the whole point. You can't keep all the rules yourself. That's the whole point of the Bible, right? Jesus did it for you. The entire Bible, including all of the New Old Testament, is pointing to one thing, one person, and that's Jesus. The Bible is about him, not about you. It's not about what you have to do in order for God to love you. It's about what Jesus has already done on your behalf. It's about the fact that Jesus came into this world and he lived a perfect life that you should have lived. And he died to satisfy God's judgment against your sin. And that he rose again, defeating sin and death and offering freedom and life in his kingdom to anyone who would repent and believe in him. The core message of the entire Bible is that Jesus offers you freedom. It's not about religion. It's not about keeping a set of rules. It's about freedom in Christ. So I just want to lay a, lay a challenge in front of you as we, as we kind of wrap up this morning. Whether you're here and you've been following Jesus for a long time or whether you're here and you're a skeptic, you're just kind of on the fence about all this Jesus stuff, here, here's my challenge to you. Read a gospel this week, okay? Any, any gospel. There are four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. If you want a short one, pick Mark. Okay, it's a, the shortest one. If you want a more technical one, you want a challenge, pick, pick Luke. I don't care which one you pick. Just pick one gospel and read it through this week, right? Pick, pick one and read it with an open mind and see if God doesn't begin to reveal himself to you. I bet he does. I bet he does. Listen, don't, don't just talk about the Bible. Don't just think about the Bible. Don't just critique the Bible. Read the Bible. Dive in. Swim around. Find Jesus. Find life. Find freedom. Look, our, our church trusts the Bible. I have staked my life on the truthfulness of the Bible. And I'm just telling you this morning, you should too. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you for not leaving us in this world as orphans, just kind of drifting through life, wondering what you're like or how we can get to you or how we can know you, God. Thank you that you have revealed yourself clearly to us in the Bible. Father, would you help those of us who already believe, who already follow Jesus, help us to go deeper. God, help us to, help us to press into the beauty of the scriptures so that we could see you more clearly, so that we could know you better, so that we could follow you into this abundant life that you've called us into. God, for those who might be in the room this morning who don't yet know you, maybe even for those who are in the room who are religious, maybe people in the room who are churchy and 
know all the right answers, but have never actually had a life-changing encounter with you through Jesus, God. My, my prayer for that person, God, is that you would give them the courage this week to just, just to read a gospel with an open mind, to just explore the, the beauty of your word and the beauty of your scriptures and in them find the God that their heart seeks. God, we love you. We ask all these things in the good name of our Savior, Jesus.